You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCRLP, Santa Cruz. Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to Drinks with Tony. My guest is Florence Williams. She's the author of Heartbreak, A Personal and Scientific Journey. By the way, did you know you could die from heartbreak? Don't avoid it. Work through it in a healthy way. Don't go suck a bottle of Jameson and push down your feelings. Go through it. Find healing. Don't have an epiphany one night and tweet a letter to Spotify and say, take down my music when the music you wrote isn't, you don't even own. After Spotify says, okay, we'll take down your music, don't go running to Amazon and their slave labor camps and tell everyone how great it is to have the music you composed but you don't even own at a place that it's all about exploiting poor people. Or push the feelings of heartbreak down. What do I care? I like records, vinyl, because I like to purchase things, not rent the possibility of a streaming service that could pull some of my favorite songs just because the artist tweeted. It was a sad old man who tweeted and had no clue. His virtue spiral is a descent of deep evils into humanity, and it might even get worse. You might be in a worse place, brother. But I'm just a guy talking about stuff, writing about stuff, talking to people who write about stuff. And we talk about how we write about stuff. Hi, this is Florence Williams, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Florence Williams. She's the author of Heartbreak. A personal and scientific journey. Florence, how are you? Hey, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. It's nice to be here. And, well, wow. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad to have you on. And it's nice to be a, be a part of this, this journey. I, I'm, I, I, I was, I'm drawn to this book because I know heartbreak all too well. And then I'm like, wait, heartbreak is going to kill me on a cellular level and an organ level? Is that the I'm case? So, I'm sorry, Tony, to hear about your heartbreak. Um, how long ago was it? Oh, I have many different heartbreaks. Many heartbreaks. No, 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 no. I, I, but I, but I've actually, I, I'm, I'm a divorce fella. So I understood that yes. part as well. I didn't, yes. you know, I was married 13 years. I wasn't married the 25, was it 25 or 30? 25, uh, 25 years married, but 32 years together. Yeah. Um, so uh, for me, what I, I felt like I not just I not only lost, uh, you know, the relationship, I lost my identity as a husband. Right. I didn't, I didn't know how important right. that was to me. Yeah. I mean, really, your whole world kind of crumbles. Yeah. Uh, I, I met the man who would be my husband when I was 18, <laughs> literally my first day of college. So I wasn't even sort of fully cooked yet as a human being. And um, he was older, like four or five years older. And so um, his interests became my interests. Um, you know, the things that he liked to do, uh, I was like, sure, I'll do that. And all of a sudden at 50, you know, he, I found myself, um, uh, you know, alone really for the first time in my entire adult life. And yes, lost my sense of identity, lost my sense of self-esteem because he was the one who chose to leave. And, you know, when our primary attachment partner sort of rejects us, it's very easy to internalize that feeling that, you know, I am unlovable. 
you know, if this yeah. major person in my life doesn't love me. Um, and so, you know, you just get kicked to the can in so many ways. Um, but what really prompted me to write this book was how I felt physically. I mean, the emotional stuff was hard, but, but what really kind of blew my, blew my mind was how much my body hurt and how I kind of started to get sick. Uh, you know, in a pretty serious way. And then I started talking to um, neurogeneticists and people who specialized in immune systems, researchers who specialize in studying loneliness, which we know yeah. is a risk factor. Um, for, for men, I was looking, it's all about that. Uh, <laughs> the, the chapter I was reading last night, yeah. it's like, if you're a dude and you're and you're alone, you're going to die. The women, <laughs> the women in this don't really matter that much because they're fine with being alone. But the women men, are OK on their own. Yeah, yeah you're going to die. I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> Not exactly that simple, Tony. I know. I, mean, I, li I like to bring it to simple terms and then exaggerate <laughs> it. And then <laughs> um, both men and women do suffer um, from loneliness. Uh, if they feel lonely. Now, yeah. you know, loneliness is one of those, um, it, it's, it's kind of a tri tricky concept because it's really um, subjective. You know, you can be married and feel lonely or you can live, you know, in a city and still feel lonely. Very true. Very, very true on both of those terms because I realized in relationships after my marriage, I was like, oh, wow, you really can feel like complete you could feel more alone in a relationship than that's outside right. a relationship that's right that's right yeah. and you can you can live alone and have tons of friends and feel like someone's got your back you know yeah. if, if you get hurt um so it's only when there's a gap between sort of what you want and what you have yeah. that um your your body is actually going to register that loneliness in your immune system um in some really profound and interesting ways that i don't think are recognized fully and don't get talked about and so the science journalist in me was very interested, not only to learn about these concepts, but actually then to take the science into my own body. Right. So um, I worked with a neurogeneticist at the university uh, at UCLA, and we actually, um, you know, drew blood from me uh, at various time points after my divorce to um, see how my immune system was looking. And how, how, it was looking how, bad. <laughs> yeah. How, how can someone who is in a similar situation, um, how could they, can they go and find out about their no. immune system? And, uh, no, okay. Do they, that's why they, they should read my book. <laughs> they, they, <laughs> because they, I am the proxy for them. Okay, all right. I, I sacrificed my own blood so that they could be informed. <laughs> I gave you my heartbreak. I gave you my blood. <laughs> You're still not reading this book yet? What is your problem? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, it was pretty sobering. Um, I definitely did have the blood cells. I had the immune cells of a lonely person. Um, and then, you know, because I was actually like really getting sick, not just, you know, looking like my immune cells were, were bad, but um, I was diagnosed with an autoimmune disease after the split, um, type one diabetes. I lost a ton of weight. I didn't want to lose. I wasn't sleeping well. Um, you know, I was just like, what the heck is happening to me and how can I get better? I had oh. this urgency to try everything I could, you know, that was science-based and sometimes not totally science-based. Um, Cocaine? <laughs> not that. <laughs> that was that was one I didn't try, but. Um, it's a good thing. Cocaine people are weird. They're so weird. I think anyway. cocaine tends to amp you up. I, I needed to calm down. 
Yeah, exactly. And and then it makes people talk a lot when they're just when you're just like going, why? Why are you talking? Yeah, I I first I needed to calm down yeah. so that I wasn't in such a freaked out fight or flight state. And and you and you and you're a fan of the pot, so right. Well, it did help me sleep. Yeah, yeah I took okay. I took some gummies. Uh, you know, yeah. in those early months after after the split, and um, they did help me sleep. Yeah. 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 I, I also really liked the um because this is where it gets weird. And I know the same feeling, too, because I was just like because I was because the first woman that because uh, I, I grew up in a, a Jehovah's Witness. So I did when I got married, that was the first woman you had sex with. That was kind of the first everything. And then all of a sudden you're not you're, you're like you're old. And who wants to have who, who I don't, what am I as a as a uh, as an available um you know person of sexual interest on this earth right and, i was I, 50 i just turned yeah 50. yeah yeah and and what was i i i i believe it was the first guy who was, <laughs> he was <laughs> even used the word harem yeah i had an unfortunate um <laughs> first sexual experience right out the gate <laughs> but you're, um, you're part as, of my harem Right. Oh, oh, actually, I wasn't part. I got kicked out of his harem. Um, How old was this dude? I can't remember. Sorry. Uh, He was my age. Oh, my God. And he's still doing that. Okay. No, no. Actually, we had so he and I became friends and we had so many good conversations in which I said, you know, you should stop treating women this way. Yeah. Especially. And you shouldn't go after these like newly, freshly divorced women. Yes. Because we're so vulnerable. Like, stop it. No, that's almost predatory if you think about it. Um, to his credit, he heard what I was saying, and um, he he actually now is married, happily married. And oh, good. So oh, are you I, friends with him still? I I kind of. I mean, kind of. Does he know about the book? Oh, he does. Yeah. Has he, he talked to you about, about the book? Or, or <laughs> no, the book's not out yet, right? It's the book's not out yet. He's he's he has seen a chapter that he's in, and yeah. um, he's uh, really supportive of of what I'm trying to do. Oh, and, good. And um, uh. You know, I think I think in, in some weird ways, you know, once we got past the, the sort of like the sex piece that wasn't working, um, I think we maybe helped each other out. <laughs> yeah, no, it's I, and then I've, I've I've also had sex with the wrong people after I was uh, divorced. Yeah, it's pretty and common. Yeah. And I'm still friends with those people. And it's just like yeah, I, yeah. I, even, I even forget that, you know, someone brought it up there. They asked me if I had sex with the one person. It was actually a jealous ex-girlfriend, but that's over now. But and I was and I didn't even remember. And I was like, oh yeah, we did. And it's just like, but because we're friends now that I it's just it's not even on my periphery that that was uh yeah, you know, well, that the, was just I, yeah. this is one of the things I wanted to write about because you often hear, I think, kind of the scuttlebutt is that you know, if you've come out of a long marriage. Um, you need time to sort of, you know, love yourself first or get to know yourself or um, before you like run off and have another relationship. Yeah. And in fact, there's sort of this, you know, conventional wisdom that that you should wait a while before having another relationship. Um, and I, uh, I resisted <laughs> that advice. Um, and then, you know, I actually, I was like, well, where's the science? What does the science say? Does the science say, it's bad to have a rebound or does the science say actually maybe it's helpful to have a rebound and it turns yeah. out um there's some studies showing that it's helpful you know it can if you're if you're feeling 
um, down in the dumps about your, you know, your um, attractiveness or your viability, you know, as mm-hmm. a as a sexual person, um, it can be really helpful. It can actually boost your self confidence. Um, it can give you a little bit more detachment, maybe from the heartbreak. Yeah. Um, and it can, you know, uh, it, it can provide you know, human touch. There's a lot of science about how helpful human touch is to calming your nervous system, um, to releasing, you know, oxytocin and serotonin and hormones that can help you kind of lift out of depression a little bit. Yeah. So I think you have to be careful doing it. I'm not going to like advise people to do it. I think you have to make that decision for yourself. But in, but in terms of the science behind it, there's not really evidence showing that it's bad to stay away from other people. You just, you know, but do it carefully. When, um, when did, when, at what point during your heartbreak, well, you were getting blood drawn and stuff, but at what point were you like, you know what? I also need to look into, I also need to know the science on this um, instead of just being divorced. Well, was it right. pretty quick? Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to find, you know, I'm a science journal. So what I do is when something happens in my life, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it triggers all these questions. It makes me curious. Yeah. Um, this in this book, this is way more personal than my other books. Um, yeah. But uh, for example, the, the book I wrote before this is called The Nature Fix. Mm-hmm. And it's because I moved from the Rocky Mountains to the heart of Washington, D.C. And I felt like my again, sort of like my body was freaking out. A stress bomb went off in my brain. You know, what was it about my environment that was changing my yeah. mood and sort of changing my anxiety levels. And so I wrote a whole book about nature being good for good for us. And it was all, you know, it was prompted by my own sort of life and curiosity. I, that's, and that's, it's a great coping mechanism. I, uh, a friend of mine who used to do stand-up comedy and, you know, and, uh, and we, um, we were both writers and I was telling him about this just tragic thing that was happening to me like 13 years ago. And he's like, dude, that's material. He said, exactly. like, you know, it, it, Efron, how fast right. do you get it from um, suffering and heartbreak to material and, and and then and then you're and then you're grateful for the tragedy because then it gave you it gave you you know creative outlet exactly it was nora efron who said everything is material oh when really you're, when you're a writer um hey so that guy was ripping off nora efron <laughs> he I'm was let's give, her, let's give her credit um <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, it is a coping mas- mechanism. And for me, you know, one of the main pieces of my identity I still did have left was my professional identity yes. as a journalist. And so it gave me some sense of, you know, purpose to get up every day and, um, you know, go into the field and talk to these really interesting scientists who, by the way, were all super helpful because they all said, well, I've been heartbroken too. And I know how much it hurts. And that's part of why I'm studying what I'm studying. And so it was Mm. validating for me just, you know, to hear them say, yeah, there's a lot of science about why you're hurting right now. And it makes sense that you're feeling this way. And here's how we think you might be able to feel better. You know, if someone has never been heartbroken, that is scarier than someone who's been heart. That's if someone has never had like a monumental heartbreak in their life, that scares me a lot more than people who are like, no, everything's been really fine. It's just great. It's all good and dandy. And I'm like, I don't know how to have a connection with you. (laughs) Now is it, now is that looking, now is that, that might be a problem with me looking for uh, what do you call it? Other broken humans or what is that? (laughs) Well, you know, 
we're all broken humans. It's just a question of whether we sort of acknowledge it or not. And one thing that being so broken um, made me realize was that in this pain and suffering, I actually came to feel sort of grateful for how it made me feel like I was alive, how it made me feel like I am capable of love. And um, I had been in a state that was more, you know, kind of numb before that. Yeah. And um, kind of going through life and, you know, checking off my to-do list and not feeling a lot of big feelings and um, kind of putting my head down and getting stuff done, being efficient. Yeah. Um, and, and, and just getting like torn down to the studs like this was um, such a profound and um, disrupting kind of experience that it has fundamentally altered, I think, the way that I move through life now and the way that I show up, um, you know. And, and do you feel like and, that, and that's in a good way? It's in a deeper yeah, way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like I'm more empathetic. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm a better listener. Mm-hmm. I feel like I'm interested in people's pain and suffering it doesn't freak me out anymore like it just seems like oh come on let's all be real and let's uh let's not hold secrets you know when we try so hard to curate ourselves in a certain way um you know and for me it was sort of like professional person professional wife Mm -hmm. um you know let's not really talk about too much that's that's deep um or or um you know god forbid veering into anything you know, sort of emotional <laughs> or spiritual. Yeah, yeah. Um, when we can move away from that, that's when all sorts of interesting, you know, growth and and real connection can start to happen. And I think when we when we hold those secrets, it just doesn't serve us. It doesn't serve us, and it doesn't serve anyone else. Right. Because and it's funny because people are. I mean, everyone's ashamed of something, and it's you know, and and the beauty is. Once you uh, just put something out there to the world um, and then all of a sudden it's just like that shame is gone. You know, no one right. can, no right. one, and, and it's, yeah, I, just, I mean, I've, I've had that experience on various different levels where it's just like something I felt so shameful about. And then I wrote a book about it too. And then it, and it's just like, and things that gutted me and things that like, you know, hurt and I didn't know where to put it. And then I got to put it in this place and, and and then it's just like that you know, that everything kind of opened up and it's like oh what am I th- then I'm like trying to find what I'm ashamed about what am I ashamed about next what don't I want anyone to know about me let's write about that and um <laughs> and it's you know it's getting uh to the point where it's a little uh it got to a point where it's a little it got a little crazy there but uh I think no, there's like, a, I mean there's a lot of shame and stigma yeah. associated with divorce. Still. There is. Oh, that I it blew my mind. Well, there there was there was levels to it because mine was also a Jehovah's Witness divorce, so that's a huge problem. I bet. But yeah. um, but it blew my mind the people that just like didn't want to come near me, and some of them were my married friends, and right. and then I realized, oh wait, they're having a problem marriage, and they 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 are they're they're the ones that are sitting there like biting their lip to keep the marriage together. And then if I'm around, I'm someone who might have a truth bomb between them. So the last thing they need from me, just being a guy recently divorced, is a guy recently divorced going, and you have other options. But I'm not even saying that out loud. I'm just a guy that's divorced. It's just, I'm an example of other options. They're like, get out of here. 
and it's it's one of the ways that it's a really lonely making experience yeah because uh your your marriage is is the way you have moved through life and the way you've kind of built a social life and a lot of social life you know for people in, in middle middle age is kind of based around couples yeah and so um and so when, when you know some of your married friends don't want to hang out with you because they think you have some kind of contagious disease oh. <laughs> um you know, it's an, it's another way you feel really alone. And I think that, you know, that the loneliness piece, um, is, is another, is another reason, you know, that we shouldn't necessarily keep these secrets or not talk about it because heartbreak itself feels, it, it, it feels like a very singular experience. Um, but of course, as you say, almost everyone has gone through it. It's a really universal, uh, experience. And when we can talk about it, we do feel less lonely. Yeah. Yeah. And and then I, and then I realized also like the married couples that kind of had their arms around me. Those were the ones that had the strongest marriage. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the ones that are happy together. And, I, and it just, it opened my eyes and I'm like, you know, where I was just like, Oh, wow. Okay. You know, after this, I want, I want to have a relationship with a person where we're together. And if somebody gets divorced, we bring them in because we're not, um, we don't feel threatened by that in any way at all. We just want to help our friend. And then the people who feel threatened nice. by it are very, are very scary people to be, you know? So. And, and they really need your friendship. Yeah. I think, you know, one of the main points of my book is that we don't take heartbreak seriously enough. Mm-hmm. You know, we think it's sort of the domain of our psyche. Um, but, but actually because it, it does change our immune systems and it uh-huh. alters our, our nervous systems. Um, it is actually kind of a, as one researcher told me, it's a hidden landmine of human existence because it does set us up for all kinds of problems physically. And hmm. so, um, if if you are heartbroken, you need to really take it seriously. Yeah, uh, you need to actively try to get better. And if you know someone who's heartbroken, you know, be a friend because they really need it. They need it right now. Yeah, and especially, I mean, I've had friends that you know, over, not recently, but some friends over the years have gotten divorced and it's just like, and you just see the look of confusion on their face and just grab them and go, we're getting a drink or we're getting a coffee and exactly. you just sit them in a chair yeah. and then, and they just listen. Yeah. Because and, they need to just talk. <laughs> they're yeah, going to pour their hearts out for, and they're going to be really that, self-involved. Yeah. Okay. People did that to me. And it's just like, I didn't even realize that yeah. it was just like how important that was just to sit there and go, sit down. What do you want to drink, Tony? And this is your night. And I'm just sitting there going, are you kidding? And then I'm just like bawling and going, yeah. and, then, blah, 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 blah. and they're like, I know. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it's, and, and it really makes you appreciate your friends. Like that's one of the beautiful yes. experiences. That's one of the beautiful sort of lessons is that yeah. the people, not everyone's there for you, but the people who are there for you yeah. are really there for you. And, and the people who aren't, I remember, and I cut them off. <laughs> <laughs> right they're not really your friends no sorry i didn't mean <laughs> I, got, I got excited with the negative end of that i was like ah. <laughs> well i found it a really powerful powerful experience to just feel loved by my friends yeah. you know yeah. i don't often hadn't often been the been the one on the ground you know and having other people pick me up was like oh i am not a worthless human being there right. are people who care about me and um that is it's a beautiful thing to be on the other side of 
And it's also a beautiful gift to them because we're, we want to help our friends. We want to help our fellow human beings. You know, it's like, it's, um, and we feel good about it after we're just like, Oh, you know, Oh, poor Florence. I hope she's better, you know, and, and it, it takes it takes other people out of their worries, too. You know, it's like, yeah. And, and one of the things I found about this book, too, is, you know, I, when my when my then husband was leaving, one of the things he said is like, you know, 50 percent of marriages fail. Like, it's not that big a deal. Everyone goes through it. Whoa, that's kind of a, a and, uh, uh, that's not the greatest statistic to he, put up while you're walking out the door with a suitcase. He was like, <laughs> why, he was like, you know this is pretty common. Stop right. overreacting. Oh my God. Um, but <laughs> when I, when I actually started digging down into the research a little bit, um, I found out that um, college educated women, my age, and co- I guess college educated people, my age um, who have been married for 20 years have only a 15% divorce rate, hmm. which is so far removed from 50%. And yeah. it's again, why, why it was kind of a lonely making experience at the time, because I was like, why, why do I know, why are none of my close friends divorced? Like, I don't know anyone really close to me who's divorced. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and so then it's another reason to feel like you're a little bit of a freak because it's just yeah. pretty uncommon. Do, do you feel like that's that, that, that statistic could also be where, the couple is just kind of really getting on with their life and checking off boxes because there's a, there's a, there's really like career and self-motivation involved. And so there's like a bit of numbness. So maybe, Oh yeah, I so do. That, I mean, yeah. I, well, the divorce rate has halved since 1980, um, uh, especially for um, college costs a lot of money, Co- college, um, <laughs> college educated people. Yes. Yeah. That's, so there are a couple of things that have changed, you know, since 1980. One is that yeah, divorce is super expensive. Um, another is that, you know, there's this intense rise in helicopter parenting. And we know now there are studies showing that children of divorce, you know, many of them do totally fine. They do great, but they are at higher risk for, um, you know, future relationship problems themselves for, um, you know, doing poorly in school for risk-taking behavior. You know, they're all the things that like parents are so hyper about preventing, uh, you know, if you get divorced, you can actually give give your children some of those problems. And so um, I think parents are really trying to stay together to yeah. give their kids every little advantage they can, um, you know, especially among those college educated professionals. And then um, what else? But I that think that also that might also too. might um, give the kids a bad notion of what a relationship is, because if they're staying in a bad relationship. Right. Well, just to get to make sure the kids are good, the kids might have that example as well. Divorce might even be better. No. Um, yeah. I mean, if it's a, if it's a home where there's a ton of conflict, mm-hmm. especially any kind of, you know, uh, emotional abuse or physical abuse, um, then yeah. But, you know, I think a lot of parents are pretty good at kind of stuffing it. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and maybe not necessarily, you know, they're trying really hard, I think, to make a good, a good family unit for their kids. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, one of the, one of the psychologists I talked to, he was telling me about how great it is to be married for your health. You know, you live Mm -hmm. longer, um, you recover from disease more quickly. If you do get cancer, it's less likely to progress to metastatic cancer. I mean, there's just like Mm. statistic after statistic after statistic that married people do better. And, but he also said that about half of all marriages are not that happy. 
Mm. They're sort of what he calls like so-so marriages or ambivalent marriages. And um, the health benefits are, are much lower in, in the sort of not very good marriages. And so then I said to him, oh, well, so maybe it's good to get divorced because from a health perspective, you know, it's, it's, it's better not to be in a kind of so-so marriage. And then he looked at me and he said, no, sorry, but actually the statistics show that divorce is actually the worst thing that you can do mm. for your health. Um, you know, when you start looking at this at a population level, um, people who are divorced um, are more likely to rate themselves as lonely. They're more likely to live um, um, with that sort of gap in what they what they want and what they have. You know, if you've, been, if you've been living alone the whole time and you're happy living alone and you've got lots of friends and you've got a support network, you know, that's great. You're going to be healthy and happy. But mm -hmm. a lot of people who are divorced sort of don't necessarily want to be, um, you know, in that state for very long. And, uh, and so that's where you see the, the, the health effects, especially true for men. So divorced men do fare worse uh, mm. in terms of their health outcomes, unless they get remarried, which, you know, a lot of them do. And mm. more men get remarried after divorce than women do. And the women sometimes do do okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. People have asked me, you know, they're like, because I'm not married now, but they're like, are you, you know, oh, you know, after, and especially people who knew me when I was married and through the whole situation. And they're like, you know, you probably never want to get married again. I'm like, no, I'm open to it. Are you kidding? It's Bring just it on. like, well, not totally. I mean, <laughs> there, there, there is, there is a gate to be crossed. There but are a lot of men, a lot of men <laughs> jump right back in. Yeah. Yeah. Including it's, my ex. Did he? What now, now are you so friendly with your ex? Yeah, we co-parent, you know, our kids. Oh, okay. Oh, you gotta and, be friendly. And, and we share You have dog. to pretend to be friendly. Yeah. We we are, we do we do. Oh, it's good to see you. Thank you for <laughs> dropping the kids off. <laughs> you know, I um I still have a lot of fondness for my ex, and I I don't think of him as being a bad guy. Good. Oh, that's good. And you know, it's it's taken a while, but I uh, I do feel. Do you feel like in on my good days, I, I feel like I forgive him. I forgive him for all of it. Well, and and it also went not only that we're forgiving ourselves because it's just like, oh wait, yeah, we saw something in that person, and there yeah. were good years, and there's and there's a reason why we saw something in that person. Yeah. So when you're so when you're 18 and you're with him, what like what was so what was so cool about him? What was so James Dean about him that you were just like, this is the dude? Oh yeah, he was super fun and. um you know, he was very athletic. I mean, this was in college. So, oh, he had he, a bod. Um, well, he was a rock climber and a mountain climber. Oh, my God. I was very outdoorsy myself. Yeah, and, yeah. and he, um, he actually, you know, was really active in hiking programs and outdoor programs in wow. the college. So he, you know, he was like a leader and he was cool and smart. And yeah. Um, oh, he's kind of he, alpha. Uh, yes, definitely. In the, in the best of terms, a lot of people think alpha means a bully, but. I, I, that's not the case. I mean, alpha means. No, he was a real leader, you yeah. know, um, and that was attractive to me. And, yeah. and he also, he just, he made me feel safe when we were mm -hmm. doing things in the wilderness. So, I mean, we lived in Colorado and Montana for 20 years and we did a ton of, you know, backcountry skiing and whitewater oh, wow. kayaking and, um, you know, backpacking trips. And he was like very, very competent in that environment that made me feel really safe. And we had a lot of fun together. We took our kids on these wilderness trips too. And you know, uh, that, those were great times. And I, I don't regret those. I mean, I look back on those memories, um, you know, 
for the most part with a lot of fondness. Yeah. And then what, why did you move to DC? What happened? How, uh, um, for his job. Oh, he, okay. He became um, the director of a nonprofit yeah. in DC. And so for his career, we moved and I didn't want to move. I mean, I, I loved Colorado. I wanted to stay right, there. Right. Moving to Washington wasn't, wasn't really top of my list. Um, and, and how long have you been in Washington? I've been in Washington for almost 10 years. And, and then how do you feel about your relationship now to Washington, D.C. as to when you first came? Oh, I have come to like it a lot more than when mm -hmm. I first arrived. Um, but it's still a big city. It's really expensive now that yeah, I'm yeah. now that I'm a single person and, uh, and still a science journalist. It's expensive for me there. So I don't oh know. Oh, my God. Journalist in any city is a problem. I, yeah, I used to write for the San Francisco Chronicle. And it's just like. Yeah, yeah going, San Francisco. Wow. Right. Yeah, you're going, exactly. what, why, why do I care about what these people are reading? Because they're making like 10 times. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> right. Right. Did, now, are you a baseball fan or no? I, I cannot say that I'm a baseball fan. Oh, okay. Because you, you left the Rockies for Nationals territory. Oh, that's, so that's true. That's yeah, true. So. Yeah. We have a good hockey team, too. Do you? Yeah. No, because I, yeah, I'm from San Francisco and the Giant. I'm looking at the calendar this year because I may go out to a DC to see the Nationals and the Giants play because I got to be East Coast anyway. I bet that'll be a good game. Yeah. Well, it's, I, I'm not proud of this whole Giants thing. I just grew up on the peninsula <laughs> in San Francisco. I grew up right by the airport where the yeah, dumpy sure. old Giants stadium was. Sure, so yeah. it's just kind of bred in you. And then, and then it's nice to put heartbreak in that little category, you know, when, when your team loses, you can yes. push heartbreak that way. And it's kind of like a, um, disassociative. It's probably it's something I should talk about in therapy. <laughs> but then it's just like all that heartbreak goes there. It's like, oh, they didn't make it this year. And then actually um, in my book, I talk a little bit about the heartbreak of sports fans. Yes. Because I look at a condition called Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. Uh, can, can you say that in English? <laughs> I, I can say it really fast. Yeah, say it really fast. Takotsubo cardiomyopathy. <laughs> wow. Okay. My mind is blown. Go ahead. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's this fascinating condition that presents itself like a normal heart attack. Uh, and in a normal heart attack, you know, there's a piece of plaque or something that blocks an artery so that your heart can't beat anymore. But mm -hmm. in Takotsubo, what happens is there's been a big emotional blow that stuns your heart. And, and it's not a blocked artery. Um, what it is, is there's this, you know, flood of stress hormones um, that causes the left ventricle of the heart to distend in, in a way that it can't beat properly. And so these mm. people end up in the hospital. It takes a little bit of time to sort of figure out like some imaging to figure out that it's not a normal heart attack. Um, and about 5% of people who have it will die. It's especially common in postmenopausal women, for example, a woman who loses a spouse or a pet mm -hmm. um, or a child, you know, it's, it's, it can be very grief um, initiated, but there are some incidences in the literature of um, soccer fans who suffer from this Takotsubo after their teams lose, you know, these big matches and, yeah. um, so it can be any kind of big emotional blow. If, huh. you, if you really love your sports teams, you might feel it. Interesting. And then that could also be that these sports fans are lonely and don't have a lot of the similar sports fans around them where they could really have grief counseling sessions. <laughs> exactly. Right. 
they need extra social support if their team <laughs> loses in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. You know, my friend killed himself. I got a divorce and then the Giants lost. Wait, the Giants lost? <laughs> oh, my God. Come here. Give us a hug. <laughs> exactly. Oh, fun. So and then so then after um, I'm, I'm so glad you're still friendly with that guy that you wrote about in the book. I think that's. <laughs> Because it's weird. Those are important. Um, that it's. I even remember, like the second person I ever had sex with in my life. I was thirty-eight years old, and that was after I. I, I had. I, my ex was cheating on me, so I didn't find out until. I'm sorry. Long. That is really rough. It was rough. Yeah, it was brutal. At the same time, yeah, and I. And you brought that up in the book, the betrayal thing. The betrayal is hard. Betrayal is big. Yeah, and it and it wasn't that it wasn't that she was cheating on me. It was the lie. The lie is what hurt. And it was just like, oh, man. And then I just strung a lie to lie to lie to lie. And I just like it all came together. And she would lie to her friends all the time, just in general, like little white lies. And I and after she got off the phone, I'd be like, why are you doing that? Oh, because I just don't want to deal with it. So I just tell them I have a lunch. And I'm like, you know, your friends are going to know there's something a little off if you're not always telling the truth. And I'm giving her these lectures as we're married and thinking I'm a okay. It's just like, no, it was all lies to me too. <laughs> like, and ouch. Yeah. Uh, why, yeah. And then I went down the rabbit hole. Why did I go down there? Because the, um, after I'd had like time to like grieve and walk around the neighborhood in San Francisco where I lived as little kids looked at me and saw this middle-aged man weeping, <laughs> they're going, right, right. daddy, is that what happens to us when we get older? <laughs> they're just like, just walk off the other side of the street. And I'm like, I can't let, I, these two just coming, man, this is how it works. And then, um, but then I did meet someone and um, it was just a one night stand situation. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was very weird for me, but I afterwards, and it was just like, She's just like, oh, you're a writer. I'm an editor. And then blah, 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 blah. And <laughs> she was like flying back to New York and we knew some mutual people. And then, and then all of a sudden it was one thing of, led to another, one thing led to another. And now we have kids. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be terrible? <laughs> I got kids in New York. I changed my name. <laughs> um, but, um, I told her afterwards, I was like, you're the second person I had sex with. She's wow. like, whoa, whoa, that's a lot. But I'm like, no, no, don't make it a lot. I just wanted to let you know. That's that, a lot to process. Yeah, I don't want you to process anything. And I don't want you to think anything beyond that. I just want to let you know, thanks for taking one for the team kind of thing. You know, I was just like, good job, kid. You know, did it make you feel better about yourself? No, God, no. <laughs> no, I don't know. Are you... <laughs> Was well, there a part uh, of you is, that was like, "Hey, oh, do you mean um, am I as as far as uh, as far as yes, I'm still a person that's sexually desirable?" Yeah, exactly. Yes, no, that that was that. Yeah, that I still maybe, got some game. Yeah, very. Yeah, true. And it was like, but even when I was married, I was kind of around the music scene and writing music for the Chronicle, and really kind of had to wear my wedding ring a lot. Mm -hmm. and kind of tell people it because it was kind of so a little more you had more... plenty of self sexual self-esteem uh not no no that's not over there. <laughs> <laughs> but i had, there, there were times where i would just like back off i'm married um right. and i really had to say like back off i'm married and it would be you know people were like on drugs or whatever and right 
right. was Je- Jehovah's Witness. I couldn't be on drugs. So, you know, it's, uh, but so I, I, I knew the, um, anyway, yeah, not to, not to, but that, that was like, oh, cool. That, that's, that's a nice thing to happen. And, and then I didn't know what I was going to do after that, but yeah. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a long road from, from, from heartbreak. And I do feel like there are some ways to speed it up, you know, which I talk about in the book. Um, yeah. and, and it's important to speed what, it up. What's, what's one great way to speed it up? Okay. So I will tell you about this conversation I had with a psychologist at the University of Utah. She said, yeah, you know, the statistics are really bad, you know, for people who get divorced, early death and a disease and dementia, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. She said, but there are some people who are really resilient. Mm-hmm. And they have certain qualities that make them resilient. And I just was like, what? Tell me, please. I need to know how do I, how do I become one of those people? And what she told me really surprised me. And it's kind of what, you know, really launched the writing of the book. She mm-hmm. said, we, we see that people who experience beauty and cultivate beauty, know how to find it, know how to appreciate it. People who can um, experience awe. These are the people who actually seem to recover really, really well. Mm. And I, and I was like, really, that's amazing because I had already written this book called the nature fix. You know, I knew that I liked being outside. I felt Mm -hmm. better outside. I liked, you know, seeing mountains and sunsets, the Milky way. Um, She said, if you can cultivate that and, and it is cultivatable, you can learn to sort of notice beauty uh, and experience awe more often. Um, these are the people who in brain imaging studies have brains that are more connected. So like their sensory, the sensory parts of their brains, the motor parts of their brains, the self-concept and storytelling parts of their brains, these kind of line up more easily uh, in ways that then lead us to um, be able to say, you know, I'm just a small person in the universe. <laughs> I'm just a grain of sand amidst all this beauty. Maybe my problems aren't as important as I think they are. Hmm. Maybe I can have some perspective here. Maybe I can also feel more connected to the world around me and mm-hmm. to other people, which is going to make me feel better and less lonely. Um, and then maybe I can learn to sort of make sense of this all, like tell myself a story about um, you know, who I am and who I want to be moving forward, how I can maintain the sense of connection, how I can help other people. It's also tied in to this ability to experience beauty and awe. So that's a lesson I have um, that, that really, I think, is sort of the dominant theme of the book. And it's not one you ever hear talked about in terms of, I think, resilience or especially heartbreak. I li- and I like the storytelling part of it because I had a devastating tragedy when I was in my 20s and, I, and a friend of mine killed himself and I brought me to the library. Cause I'm like, how do I not kill myself? <laughs> I didn't know. Right. And so I, and, but that brought me from psychology section to, and I, you know, I never really got a chance to actually read as a Jehovah's witness. And then, and then I found novels and I was like, they, this, I was never spoken to on that emotional of a level in my life. And so the, and then even now I can read a novel 30 years later. And, and, or even, or even, you know, nonfiction work when I'm reading your work. And this is the whole reason I'm in this game. It's Mm, it's like, cause I can, it's just something that hits you in the heart on a reading level on a storytelling level. It's just like, oh my God, I am part of the, I am part of the human race. Right. Right. It's important to feel that way. 
And a lot yeah. of people sometimes don't, especially now. I mean, there are more yeah. people who feel lonely than ever. Um, yeah. And it's hard to maintain those connections, you know, over, over these last couple of years. Um, yeah, so but we get to do it on Zoom. We Thank get God to do it on Zoom. <laughs> Not the same. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I tell people, you know, go outside, find some beauty. Yes. It'll, it'll make you feel better. Yeah. Uh, and, what, and what are some of your favorite bands? My favorite bands? Yeah. Okay. Lighten this up. Jeez, it's been heartbreak for like how long? Well, I, I had this, I had the soundtrack to my heartbreak. Do you really? Well, oh my I mean, God. Yes. yeah. I yes. mean, so actually it was Liz Fair. I mean, Liz Fair was mm. like, she was like the main right. it's, soundtrack it's, it's, to my it's heartbreak. It's in your book, the, the soundtrack. Yeah. And I quote her, and, you mm -hmm. know, yeah. I mean, I really, um, I just found a lot of comfort in her. And I think part of it was that I listened to her a lot when I was in my 20s. Yeah. And, and my ex, you know, never really was into her. Uh, what, he, was he, what was he into? Oh, well, so it's interesting. I mean, we we, we straddled the Gen X baby boomer divide. Yeah. So he was yeah. like technically baby boomer and I was technically Gen X and totally different musical tastes. Um, yeah. You know, I mean, he was he into loved, Yes like, and Rush and you were into. Yeah, like <laughs> the Almond Brothers, you know, I mean, what? I don't know. Uh, how did you marry that? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, some perfectly good music, but, but um, yeah, I mean, I was definitely into sort of the younger stuff and, you know, I grew up in the eighties, like I was in high school yeah. in the eighties. So, yeah. um, you know, talking heads and, you know, it was like just a different thing. REM was really into REM. Oh, when I was a kid. Yeah. Especially in high school in the eighties, REM was like everything. I yeah. went and saw them on the document tour. And just, REM is so good. Yeah, just see them that close up. And Michael Stipe with his full head of hair back in the day and all of his eye makeup. And I'm just going, you are God. You know? <laughs> so I think that was the last time I saw him too. So. Exactly. But I felt like Liz Fair was like my identity. Yeah. You know? She was like bringing me back to myself in this cool way. Have you seen and, her live? Uh, I have seen her live. Yeah. How just many a, times? A few, I saw her right. I just saw her right before the pandemic, actually. Uh -huh. I saw her at the 930 Club. Oh DC. yeah, yeah, right on. Yeah, and it was it was filled it was filled with Gen X men. <laughs> really, <laughs> who were all in love with her right back in the day. Yeah, and they the, were they were there. My my guy's been Nick Cave. My, mm. Nick Cave has brought me through love and heartbreak for, since 1990 when I first saw him and I was working at a college radio station oh, and wow. I didn't know who he was and I went and I was still kind of a Jehovah's Witness at the time and I wasn't supposed to be doing college radio. And then I see these guys and they're all dressed in suits and they're kind of like talking about like they're, they're doing these songs that are kind of angry, but they're kind of biblical. And I'm going, oh, my God, those are my guys. I better see them more before they die. And then Nick Cave never dies and keeps getting better and better. And I'm like, I lucked out on him. <laughs> it could have been Kurt Cobain, but it it's really up. helpful. You know, I mean, the music is one way it's it, it is a kind of awe and a kind of beauty. You know, yeah. when you can um, let the music really like seep into your senses, when you can sort of like feel it in your body and give yourself over to it, that is a kind of, of awe experience. And yeah. a lot of, you know, you know, people, I, I also, I, I went to hear some classical music live oh, during my yeah. heartbreak too. And, you know, you could actually like feel the trombones in, yeah. in your bones. I mean, it was, that is awesome. It's really amazing. That's right. When I when I when I was uh, in the middle of divorce, you know Jonathan Richmond. Yeah, sure. Uh, I love Jonathan yeah. Richmond. Yeah. So he played four nights. He, he he's in San Francisco, and I was in San Francisco at the time. So he'll play this small place called the Makeout Room, which holds like maybe a hundred people, wow, hundred fifty nice. people, and he'll do this four night residency once a year. 
And I went all four nights and I just sat there. I was just like, oh, I'm like, I know. I get your pain, Jonathan. Yes, I get it. You know, and then he'd be all dancing in the lesbian bar. And I'd be like, oh, my God. Okay. And then everything's okay at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And then you you feel it with other people, too, which is really nice. right? Like There's this like collective experience of awe, which is also, I think, part of it. Right. It's part of feeling like you're you're in it together. The 930 club's actually a kind of a big club. A lot of punk played in those days. Uh, that, that's, isn't oh, it? yeah. Yeah. It's I saw the clash forever. there. I Did saw you the clash really? there when I was um, in, the, in the 1980s. Yeah. No great. way. Oh, yeah. my God. I'm, oh, I bow to you. <laughs> Why were you in D.C. in the 80s? Because my dad lived in D.C. So I grew up in oh, New York. Okay. But my parents were divorced. Um, I would spend summers in D.C. See, that's a good reason to have divorced parents, because then you get to hang out and see bands yeah. in Washington, D.C. and in New York City. And in New York. And I did a lot of that in New York, too. So I, oh, grew, okay. so, I grew up going to like CBGBs. Oh, dear Lord. OK, let's uh, talk to me real quick. What other bands have you that were just that, you, will, you know, will blow me away and I'll be hurt and hard. OK, so I think twice I saw the dead Kennedys once at CBGBs and once actually in Washington, D.C. Wow. Cool. All there. Did you ever oh. see Fugazi and Minor Threat? I didn't. Oh, yeah. No, did you? I saw Fugazi probably about seven times or eight times. But I mean, I'm West Coast. So they had to come to L.A. I mean, they had to come to San Francisco for us. But if I was in D.C., I probably would have seen Minor Threat and, you know, all like Bad Brains is a D.C. band. I don't I don't know if you ever saw them. Never saw them. But New York had to have some other great. Come on, there's give me a few more bands from New York when you were in New oh, York. Yeah. Well, you were at CB, did you go to Ramon shows at CBGB's? I did go to one Ramon show. Yeah. Um. They were fantastic, and I I went to U two. That was oh, a yeah? good one. That Which tour? Fun. Oh gosh, I have no idea. I saw oh, them okay. um, at uh, the Paramount. Uh, uh, what what city is that in? New, uh, York? New York, isn't it the Paramount? I don't know. I, I don't know. I have we have um, Paramount in Oakland, so that's why I lose. Oh okay. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was them. Um, yeah. yeah. If you would have said you two at CBGB's, I would have been like, good job. Oh, that would have been fun. Yeah. No, unfortunately not. But you were going to say someone else. I interrupted you. Oh, let's see. Who else? Um, Oh, I saw the Grateful Dead a couple of times. That was. Oh, my apologies. (laughs) (laughs) That was one my ex and I agreed on. Wow. Yeah, I I see. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) The Holman Brothers dead. Yeah. Have you seen Fish? I have not seen fish. Okay, thank God. Not seen fish. <laughs> I'm so I'm such a mean. I try not to be a music snob in my fifties, and, and I'm still a college radio DJ, and it's disgusting. Um, <laughs> did, did you ever see Nick Cave in New York, or no? Because he never, lived in New York no, for a bit too. Never did. No. Oh, okay. No, I actually left New York um, when I was eighteen, and I never lived there again. Oh, what part of New York? Upper West Side, 89th oh, okay. in Amsterdam. Yeah. What, what in Amsterdam? 89th. 89th. I, I, I won't. So I've only, I, I, I was in New York in 2019 for the first time in over 20 years. So I was like, I just, and I was trying to try wow. to see if I could be bi-coastal. Yeah. Oh, so great. I just, everyone, oh, it's just, I love the energy of that city. Yeah. And being so close to DC and Philly and it's just, it's all right there. It is. It's, it's, you know, I, I, I am a city person and I'm also a nature person yeah. and um, it's sometimes it's hard to sort of juggle, juggle them both. But, um, you know, D.C. has a lot going for it and it has a lot of parks. So I'm, you know, I'm in the parks in D.C. almost every day. I have a big dog. I take her for walks. I try to, you know, cultivate that beauty and um, keep it going. 
Wonderful. Florence, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure, Tony. Florence Williams on Drinks with Tony. Check out her new book, Heartbreak. Next week on the show, we have Adam Gennad. His debut, debut novel is After Tonight, Everything Will Be Different. Hey, do you have an idea for a novel or a screenplay? Have you already written the first draft? Then ping me for story consulting and coaching. Go to TonyDuchesne.com for more information. Yes, I'm sponsoring myself. I could go blind. TonyDuchesne.com for more information. Hey, take care of your hearts. Read more books. I'll see you next week. Such a beautiful
beautiful thing Well, it was then that I broke down It was then you lifted me up again As she moves among the sparrows And she walks across the sea
You're listening to 101.9 FM, KPCR LP, Santa Cruz.